Appreciate it. Yeah, it really is a, uh, a joy to be with y'all. RUF is the college ministry of this denomination. And um, so I've actually, I've prayed for Christ Fellowship. Uh, it's a joy to get to be here uh, and see the way that God's at work. Um, what we're going to do this morning, uh, and Mike is actually a friend, he and I went to college together, but we're going to parachute into the Gospel of Matthew this morning. And what's helpful to know, I think, is that the Gospel of Matthew was written mainly to a Jewish audience to show that Jesus is the promised Messiah. Or maybe the word we'd use today, the hero, the superhero, uh, that's going to save his people and the whole world from the devil, from sin, and put everything back together again. And so this is actually the last little bit of info in the Gospel of Matthew before he's a full-fledged 30-year-old adult. And I think Matthew wants us to examine that this Jesus has entered the world, and he wants us to look at the different reactions that, that, that happens when this hero enters the world. All right, because most of us, we think, oh, hero has arrived. Awesome. This is going to be great. Everybody loves a hero. But that, that's actually not true if you think about it. Your reaction to a hero's entrance is always dependent on what you perceive that hero is doing to you and for you, right? Like, you could pick a thousand examples, but think about Batman or the Dark Knight series. There are very different reactions when Batman shows up, the hero. On the one hand, if you're the guy that's being held up at gunpoint, you know, by a bank heist, and Batman shows up, you're fired up, you're overjoyed. Salvation is here. But if you're the Joker, if you're the villain who wants to dominate the world with confusion and violence and darkness, he hates Batman. Because Batman's arrival means his kingdom of chaos and darkness is actually threatened, right? And then you have like Commissioner Gordon and the policemen. And their reaction's interesting because it's always a mixed bag. Because on the one hand, they kind of like him because he does some good and he helps out their life in some ways. But on the other hand, they don't like him because they're in charge and they're policing the system and Batman's kind of this vigilante that runs around and does things not their way. He messes up their order. And so even just when you think about Batman, there's the principle. When the hero arrives, there's always various responses. And so when a hero arrives, you don't just learn what the hero's about. By people's responses, you learn what those people are about. Does that make sense? And so that's the paradigm I want you to have in your head as we're about to read God's word, that when Jesus comes on the scene, the hero, Matthew wants us to see the different reactions there are to him. And I think they're the same reactions of our own hearts. Let me, uh, let me pray quickly and we'll read God's word. Lord has, has already been prayed. Uh, nothing happens unless the Holy Spirit shows up. So would you bring your spirit through your word so that we leave this morning changed uh, by the goodness and power of Jesus. In your son's name I pray, amen. All right, here's Matthew 2. Awesome, it's up here. I'm relieved only, I uh, have to read the English part. Uh, it'd be a struggle otherwise. So here we go, Matthew 2. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea, of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, 
Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. They told him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet. And you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went on their way. And behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary his mother, and they fell down and worshipped him. Then, opening their treasures, they offered him gifts, gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warmed in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you, for Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old and under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children, and she refused to be comforted, because they are no more. All right, so Matthew lets us watch what I want to suggest, three reactions to the hero. And I would like to see if we can see something about our own hearts and their reactions. We're going to look at the reaction of Herod, and then we're going to look at the reaction of the scribes, and then the wise men, or the magi, whatever, whatever you call them. Herod, scribes, wise men. All right? Herod, this is verse 1 through 8 and 16. Herod is called a king, and we'll see that's important. But we actually know a lot about Herod from historical records. He was a king in the region of the Roman Empire. He was neurotically fearful about someone taking his power. We actually know from historical record he executed his wife, his mother-in-law. He killed three of his sons. One time he murders 300 court nobles at one time. That's simply a list of the people that Herod would kill at the first thought that they might not be trustworthy. And so, think about it. When this group of wise men arrive in a caravan to Jerusalem, the capital, the place where the king is, and they ask, where is this king born of the Jews? I think you can imagine the whole court kind of holding their breath. 
oh no, what's going to happen? Because it says King Herod is troubled, and so all of Jerusalem with him, they know what Herod is capable of. They know when he feels threatened, someone's going to be destroyed. And so Herod comes up with this shrewd plan. He tells the wise men to let him know when they find him so that he can worship the new king. But by the end of chapter 2, right, Herod has discovered that the wise men don't follow his plan. And so he has every male child under the age of two murdered to try to end the life of this newborn king that is a threat to his kingship and power. That's the reaction of Herod upon hearing this hero, Jesus, has come on the scene. He rebels, and he attempts to destroy the hero by massacring children. And we read that, and we think, uh, that is dark. That's evil, and it is. But what I want to say is, I think there's a way of dismissing Herod, because it's so extreme that we just kind of move on. But let me, let me quote Frederick Bruner. He's a commentator. He says this, Herod is not merely the gospel villain, but every man. Herod is not merely the gospel villain, but every man. I want to suggest to you that Herod's, yes, extreme reaction is a window in the heart of every one of us. How? Remember, The reaction to hero Jesus is always dependent on what your perception of the hero is doing for you and to you. And what does Herod love? Herod loves power. Herod loves comfort. Herod loves being in charge. So when this hero, this new king, shows up, Jesus is now a threat to the things that Herod clings to to feel important. Power, comfort, Uh, uh, all those things. And so Herod has no interest in worshiping Jesus because he wants to be king. And so when the hero arrives, Herod has a choice. He can either humble himself and worship Jesus or he has to eliminate the threat to his power. And if we're determined to get our way at all costs, this is what's true of us, we'll go to any lengths to exterminate all trace of Jesus and his claim on our life. I think now we're starting to see the window into how Herod can actually reflect what goes on in us. Our hearts try to destroy anything that threatens what we prize. Um, Over the, uh, now, pandemic that's lasted 18 months, uh, I watched a documentary from ESPN called The Last Dance. I don't know if you you got to watch this. I'm a basketball fan, but it's a 10-part documentary about the Chicago Bulls franchise back in the 90s when Michael Jordan, uh, you know, was was running over everybody in the NBA. It was so nostalgic for me. That's what I grew up in. But the documentary, the villain in the documentary may be fair, maybe not. I don't know. It's the general manager of the Bulls, Jerry Krause. I don't know if you watched this. But he was the architect and the brains behind the whole franchise of the Bulls, okay? He's the one who drafted Jordan. He's the one who realized the talent of Scottie Pippen and got him. He's the one who realized Dennis Rodman will be perfect for this team. But what's so fascinating as you watch the documentary is you see the destructive spiral that Jerry Krause does to himself. 
Because what Jerry Krause wanted was the credit for the Bulls. He wanted the applause. He wanted to be known. The problem was there's this guy named Michael Jordan, arguably the greatest player of all time. And as Jordan ascends and people start talking about Michael Jordan and his success and his recognition, Jordan the hero threatens Krause and what he wanted, which is recognition and credit. And so the division happens. What ends up happening is either Krause has got to humble himself and acknowledge Jordan, or Jordan has to go or Krause has to go. But both can't, can't claim the same thing. And the dynasty actually splits. It's really sad because Krause couldn't let go. And my question to you is, have you seen King Herod in yourself? I have in myself. If you've never resisted Jesus, I'm not sure you're thinking as clearly as Herod. I don't think you understand Jesus' claims. We talk often about Jesus being our personal Savior, which he is. He's born Savior. But if the Magi had shown up to Jerusalem and said, hey, we're looking for Jesus born a personal Savior, Herod never would have gotten upset. Oh, that's great. Go find your personal Savior. But see, Jesus is Savior and King, which means he lays claim on everything. And when Jesus' kingship, here's what I want to suggest, threatens the things that we hold on to that make us feel secure, that make us feel significant, we have a choice. I either humble myself or I begin to dismiss Jesus. It happens with the rich young ruler later on in the Gospels. Like Jesus looks at him and says, sell all your stuff and follow me. And he walks away. It's the only person that Jesus ever looked at personally and said, follow me, and he walks away. Why? Because you know this, money is how I control my life. Money makes me feel secure. It makes me feel like I'm going to be okay. And Jesus' kingship claims it. And submitting to him means he calls us to generosity, to putting others before ourselves, to love our neighbor. But money feels like security. And so many times we just don't listen to Jesus. And so instead, we sh maybe we shade the truth about our taxes uh, maybe we have more concern about our, the value of our house uh, and the neighborhood we live in and what that means rather than loving our neighbor. And so we just don't listen to Jesus. Or if what makes me feel secure is people's acceptance. Jesus isn't just a personal savior, he's a king. And he has claim on how we treat people. But if, if school for you is hard and you're lonely and what's going to make you feel accepted is you make fun of others and you put others down. When Jesus claims that and says you've got to be kind to others, it's either dismiss Jesus or worship him and maybe lose the acceptance of others. And see, that's when you start realizing what, what's going on in Herod's heart. Yes, his reaction is extreme, but it's true of all of us. That we can be opposed to King Jesus when he lays claim on our life. Second of all, you have the scribes, verse 2 through 6. I think we kind of miss this reaction. It's these scribes and priests. These were the religious leaders. These were the overseers of the temple, the expert, expert interpreters of Scripture. This is Pastor Mike, right? And when the entourage from the east, when they, when they arrive, and they begin asking about this one who's been born king of the Jews, Herod again, he actually gets this right. He who does Herod consult? The Bible experts. When he, the Bible, when, he, uh, 
asked the Bible experts, he asked them, where's this Messiah, the Christ supposed to be born? Here's what's interesting. The religious experts, they nail it. They get a hundred on the Bible test. They quote from Micah and they tell Herod, the scriptures are clear. The Messiah will be born in Bethlehem. They were right. But here's something a little shocking about the passage, I think, a little strange. Maybe it was out of fear of Herod, fair. But these are people who built their life on knowing the scriptures and waiting for the promised hero, the Messiah. This is what their life was about. And think about it. These wise men arrive from the east, and they ask about this king being born. Herod asks the location. They say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. And here's what's fascinating. They never go investigate. I mean, the long-awaited Messiah that they've been searching the scriptures for, waiting for, might be here. And you think a few, like just maybe a few of them would say, let's go. Let's at least investigate. But they never move a muscle. This is what's interesting. They are immersed in religion and the Bible, but they are never compelled to move towards Jesus, ever. They, they knew the Bible and they missed Jesus. How can that be? And I think the priests... And the scribes, they show us some, a different kind of reaction. And I think it's surprising. There's a way to actually know the Bible and use the Bible and miss Jesus. It's still, it's still opposition to the hero. But instead of it being kind of, you know, violent, it just looks like apathy. It looks like not caring. So, you know... This is a hard truth, but in the history of conservative evangelical churches that were predominantly white, like my denomination, it's really sad. Because in some ways, my world prided ourselves in knowing the Bible the best. We're like, you know, we're the doctrine people. And, but when you look at our history, theological precision was used, this is what's sad, to ignore Dr. Martin Luther King's voice to love your neighbor. Think about it. The Bible was used in a way to resist Dr. King and it's called the Civil Rights Movement. And what many in my world were doing was using the Bible to resist Jesus. It's really sad. And I know this sounds upside down because Christians are the scripture people. Hopefully you see Christ Fellowship is about the Bible every week. Yet there's a way that you can use Bible knowledge, kind of wield the Bible in a way that ironically keeps you from Jesus and keeps you from his mission and submitting to following him. Right, that can look like maybe you've experienced a parent or a friend who has lots of Bible knowledge but is really harsh. Where the Bible is used as a way to kind of control other people, to shame others. And the whole time that person actually remains apathetic towards Jesus. Some of the meanest people I've met can, ha can be those with Bible knowledge, actually. And that's a way of dismissing Jesus. Or the Bible can be used in a way to make yourself untouchable. If I have just enough knowledge of the Bible, I can always find a way to justify what I'm doing, especially if the people around me have less Bible knowledge, right? 
Or we can begin to think that like the Bible is the way to make myself secure and comfortable. If I parent God's way, if I'm a friend the way the Bible tells me to, then I can actually control life and people to a way where my heart will never be broken and I'll never have suffering. But that's actually not trusting Jesus. It's trying to, trying to get a system to get what you really want without submitting and following Jesus. And anytime we start using the Bible like that, the scriptures are not bringing me to Jesus to love him and adore him. I'm using them to try to get the life that I want. And so the scribes and the priests reveal something I, I think disturbing about our hearts. Is there's a way we can be around the scriptures know a lot about them, but be unmoved by Christ. And I think it's worth asking, like, when is the last time that you actually adored Jesus? You've been moved by him, softened by his love towards you. So two things, right? We've seen how when uh, Jesus arrives, Herod shows us a heart that just outwardly opposes him by trying to resist and destroy him. And then the scribes show us a heart that opposes the hero by being religious, by knowing the Bible in a way to try to stay in control of my life, but be apathetic towards Jesus. But then finally, there's the wise men or the magi. I don't, you know, however you grew up hearing the term. I'm actually going to use the term magi because that's the Greek name for these guys. Because I think if you grew up uh, in the United States, we have this picture of these guys. They're riding camels. They have turbans. They're at the nativity scene, which actually is probably wrong. Uh, Jesus is probably two years old at this point. And it's this kind of romanticized picture of them. But they're magi, which is short for magicians. They were from the east, far east, probably Babylon, which is today Iraq or Persia, they were astrologers, okay, not astronomy. Astrology, which means they studied the stars to try to ascertain God's will for their life. Here's what I want you to see about the Magi. All three of those things expressly forbidden by Scripture. They served the gods of Babylon, forbidden. They had a practice of trying to control the supernatural through magic, expressly forbidden. And they tried to read God's will through the stars, expressly forbidden. The Magi in every way are lost. They're the last group of people you would ever expect to respond to the hero Jesus in a positive way. They were, they were the least deserving of the invite to Jesus' birthday party, Okay. Yet, here's what's interesting, they become the models of how to respond. Well, this comes from my friend Brian Habig, but look what happens. Behold the goodness and kindness of God. This really is amazing. God speaks to these astrologers in a language that they will understand. What do the, what do the Magi traffic in? They traffic in the arts of dreams and studying stars. And how does God speak to them? Through a dream and through a star in the sky. That's awesome. Yeah, they're spiritual leaders of Babylon, so maybe there's a chance they are acquainted with some of the Old Testament, maybe not. But God actually condescends 
and he speaks their language. This is how gentle and good God is. He speaks, to use another term, he speaks their love language. (laughs) Their love language was dreams and stars, and that's what God uses. And you realize that God is like this excited father that will do whatever it takes to draw these men to behold his son, Jesus. And so one of the things that we see from the Magi is this invitation to start seeing all of life as an invitation to trust Jesus. Even bad things that are bad. But it's part of living under the kingship of Jesus is realizing that even through bad things, my king Jesus is pursuing me. But secondly, I just want you to imagine the scene. They're told Bethlehem from the scriptures, the star appears again, the magi come, and they show up, again, probably not to a nativity. Jesus is a, is a little toddler, probably somewhere between six months and a year and a half old. And they come to his home. And so imagine the magi knocking on the door, whatever it was, and Mary answers, and they walk in. And there's Mary either holding this toddler, or maybe Jesus is standing and she's holding his hand. And these these magi fall on their knees and start worshiping this toddler. And then they bring out these these sacks and, and expensive treasures of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And did you see this in verse 10? It says, all the while rejoicing exceedingly with great joy. That's bad grammar, okay? Matthew's trying to get you to see the scene. They're worshiping, giving gifts all the while with this just joy that they can't get over. In my context, the only time I see this kind of joy, and this is probably where where white culture isn't very good, but the only time I see this kind of joy is is like an Ole Miss football game. When like all of a sudden, you know, we're getting close to beating Alabama and everybody in the stadium is like grabbing each other and shaking each other and being like, I can't believe we're going to see this. That's the kind of joy, exceeding joy that the Magi are having as they see Jesus. Okay, keep imagining the scene. So they give the gifts, they, have, they worship him, and then they travel, what, maybe another three months on, on animals back home? And they come back to Babylon. They've been gone half a year. I want you to think about this. And imagine they come back, you know, to their families, to their wife, to their kids. They've been gone for six months. And their family's like, tell us about it. Tell us about it. What did you find? And they say, we found him. He was just a child. He's a little toddler. Okay, okay, okay. What, what, like, what'd you do? We worshiped him. We gave him all these gifts. And can't you kind of imagine the family being like, anything else? Like, that's it? <laughs> like, what did he do for you? Did he give you anything? And they say, nope. We just gave him what we had and we worshiped him and it was totally worth it. Amazing. Jesus was the point. Worship of him was and is the joy. That's it. Have you ever experienced anything like this? When something is no longer a means to an end to get what I really want, but is the end itself? I, I grew up, um, my life was sports and watching movies and working when my dad told me I had to. You know, That was about it. So things like Broadway and music and theater... I just, I frankly, I never watched and didn't enjoy. 
But when I was in college, I met this woman named Liza, who's now my wife, by the way. And I discovered that she loved musical and Broadways. So I started acting like I like Broadways and musicals, right? This is what you do. Oh, me too. And then I found out uh, that there was a musical that was going to happen in Memphis. So I spent uh, at that time what was a lot of money to take her on a date to a musical there. And we go. And she loves it. And I don't really understand what's going on. But by golly, she's there. So I love it, right? So think about that. I spent a lot of money for the first time to purchase tickets to a musical. Why? Because I loved a musical? No. That was a means to get Liza to like me, right? (laughs) Well, here's the deal. You know, 18 years since that incident, I've actually grown to where I actually enjoy musicals and like them. And so fast forward about three years ago, you know, before the pandemic, this Broadway, named Evan Han- this Broadway show named Evan Hansen comes to Memphis. And so I find myself spending a lot of money to take Liza, who's now my wife, to Evan Hansen. And you're like, oh yeah, to get Liza right. No, no. Here's the deal. When I went on to buy tickets, there were only about two tickets left that I could buy. One was over there and one was way back there. And I bought them both. And I loved it. Not because I got to be with Liza. I actually waved to her at intermission, and that was it. <laughs> I spent a lot of money not to get Liza to like me, but to enjoy Broadway, because that was the point. A new, like, it wasn't a means to an end anymore. It was the end itself. This is what it looks like to respond to King Jesus as he really is, to worship him. He's the point. Love, adore, delight in him. He's the end goal. So I'll end by saying this. Do you know one of the signs that Jesus is your king? You joyfully begin to give good gifts. True worship means that I now hold things with open hands that I used to cling to because those were my life and my security. You're offering those things that I used to hold on so tight because I'm convinced these things are the key to security, money, acceptance, comfort. But now because Jesus is my king and I'm entrusted to his care, I say, okay. I mean, this stuff's good, but I can hold it with open hands. And so you give up money. You give up time. You give up power for the sake of others to make others comfortable. You give up being right because Jesus has made you righteous. And so the way to respond, I'll end it here. Like the Magi, you have to see the situation. You have to see that our hearts are like Herod and our hearts are like the scribes and the priests. But then you have to see Jesus is good. You will never entrust yourself to Jesus until you convince that he is good. And he's a king that is gentle and is for you. Yes, he's a threat. But he's a threat to only the things that want to destroy you. And you know what? We know even more than that than the Magi know. Because if you thought it's incredible how God condescended and used the love language of the Magi in stars and dreams... You don't know the depths that he went to get you and me. It's interesting because this baby becomes an adult. He's going to be arrested. He's going to be put on trial. He's going to be mocked. And once again, it's going to be by the same groups. The kingly power of that region, Pontius Pilate and his Roman soldiers. He's also going to be put on trial by the scribes and the Pharisees. And you know what happens is Jesus gets dressed up as a king. Not to honor him, but to mock him. 
They'll spit upon him. And here's what's cool. Matthew never uses the term king of the Jews again in his old gospel, you know, until, until one moment where Jesus hangs on a cross and above him is a sign that's supposed to mock him that says, this is Jesus, the king of the Jews. Come on, Jesus, come down. Use your power to save others. And in the greatest act of humility, in the greatest act of power and love, he stays on the cross showing what a true king is like. Real greatness, real defeat of enemies, he's going to die for them. He will pay the penalty for all of my heredness, all of my apathy. Why? To, cling, to free us from clinging to all those things that are in the end are really worthless and can't save us to cleanse you and me from all of our apathy and all of our darkness, to take what we deserve so that one day when Jesus the King returns, he will bring a final healing. And God the Father will present you with exceeding joy. It's a picture of, in Revelation of, 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 a, of a groom presenting his bride with great excitement. These are mine. He loves you. So what's your reaction to Jesus this morning? What kind of reaction looking at his arrival and his death and his resurrection, what does it do? He's a king. There can only be one king. And I would invite you like the Magi to worship him because he's good. And the hands of the king are gentle and for you. Let's pray. Father, uh, I pray that you would be pleased by your spirit to work in us a reaction that is like the Magi that would see that you're a king, yes, who threatens us, but threatens only the things that want to destroy us, to bring us into life with you, life of, that removes shame, that removes uh, sin, and that takes care of us as a good king does. Would you give us that kind of submissive heart in Jesus' name? Amen. All right. We now... We turn to the portion of our uh, service where we are reminded, let me get to 1 Corinthians 11, that one of the ways that Jesus loves us is he realized uh, he made us body and soul, and he communicates to us that he loves us not just by hearing his word taught, which is good, but also feeding us with something that touches our tongues and touches our hands and says, as real as that is, so real is my love for you. He, he, and, and that not only is your soul saved, but communion actually makes a promise to your body that if you've trusted Christ, your body is saved and will be resurrected one day and will sit with Jesus and all of us together in this family meal, the great wedding supper of the Lamb. So here's what the Apostle Paul writes, uh, reflecting on this in verse, uh, 1 Corinthians 11. He says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is a table uh, that is, it's not just Christ Fellowship's table. It's the table of the Lord. And so if you have entrusted yourself to Christ, if you realize you are unworthy of his love, if you realize that you have messed up this week in trying to follow him and need his forgiveness, it's for you. This is not, it's not a table for perfect people. There's only one perfect person. His name is Jesus. 
There's a table for people who need mercy and have entrusted themselves to Jesus. So if that's not you, I'd ask you not to partake, um, and I'd ask you to think about Jesus' love. Don't partake because it would be, actually be hypocrisy. I'd be taking a family meal that's for Jesus' people when I'm not a part of his family. And so think about it. Pray. Uh, ask, Jesus to con- ask the Lord to convince you that Jesus is real. He's that good. He's that humble. But if you are one of, one of Jesus' uh, children, then come. Eat the bread, drink the wine, and be reminded that his body has been broken for you and his blood has been spilled for you. Let me pray. And then Mike told me that the way y'all do it because of COVID is one person comes up, takes the amount of elements for your family, takes it back, and then I I think we take them all together. Is that right? So let let me pray, and we'll take them together. Father, thank you for loving us, body and soul, and for giving us something that we can physically touch. Because if anybody in here is like me, um, Sometimes I hear the words, Jesus loves me, and it doesn't feel real. Sometimes um, a shirt or a table can feel more real than your love for us because you made us physical beings. But Lord, thank you for giving us bread and wine, and I pray that by your Spirit, it would grow us in our love for you and remind us that you're real and you're alive and you're coming again. Would you do that in Jesus' name? Amen. So now come uh, and take one for your family, and we will take it together.